The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, we are doing a uh, standalone sermon this morning in a different text than where we have been. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, it's on page 1018 of a Bible in the rack in front. If you need one, do open a copy of the Scriptures with us to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 21 this morning. I mentioned earlier this morning that uh, October 31st will mark the 505th anniversary of what we mark as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, October 31st, 1517, All Saints Day, uh, the eve of All Saints Day at Wittenberg, Germany, when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the castle door of the of church at Wittenberg. Um, but beyond just a historical reality uh, in church history, we want to consider a bigger reality this morning about the authority of God's Word. Now, I, I have told you this story in the past, but it's, it's one of my favorite memories, actually, from serving in ministry here in Edgington, but it didn't take place in Edgington. Uh, I think I was only here a year or two, and I was going to the hospital to make a, a visit, visit somebody in the hospital, uh, and uh, at the hospital they have uh, clergy parking spots. They have special designated parking spots for clergy that make me feel very special. They're almost always uh, taken and I don't actually get to use them. But in this occasion, I was able to pull right in, park in the clergy parking spot, promptly to get out and then to make my visit. But I didn't get more than five steps outside of the vehicle when a security guard whips around and points out the window at me and says, you can't park there. To which I was a little bit astonished. It was a why I don't know what you're talking about. Why not? And they said, you can't park there. Uh, that's clergy only. Uh, to which I said, I mean, that's me. I mean, I am a pastor. And they said, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm like, so totally confounded about, you know, what to do. I actually, I don't, I don't carry it on me, but I have a little credentialing card from our presbytery that, that designates me as the Reverend Zachary A. Hopkins. I mean, I could pull out my credentials, right? But I didn't have that thing. So standing there totally confounded, what I did have was I had my Bible, and I just said, like, yeah, yeah, I am. I, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm here to go into the hospital and make a call. Look, I've got my Bible with me. And they kind of gave me this scant look and said, well, maybe you are. <laughs> well, in that particular instance, both in spiritual reality and in physical actuality of evidence, uh, the Bible was my authority. It was my actual proof of evidence that I was who I says I was doing what I came to says I was going to do. The Bible was my authority in that instance. Well... That's not just true for me as a pastor needing to park in clergy parking spots that aren't usually available anyway, but rather the Bible is the authority not just for me, but for you. The Bible is the authority for us as a church. And one of the things that is a part of our historical and theological heritage, both as a church, but also as a part of the true church of Jesus Christ, is that we hold the Bible to be the final highest and exclusive authority for all things for our faith and practice. 
That's what the term that you see in your bulletin, the sermon title is sola scriptura. That is the Latin phrase, scripture alone, by which we articulate that the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. It is the measuring stick by which all things are measured. It doesn't mean, though, that tradition is bad, that confessions of faith are bad, that the Apostles' Creed is bad, but it does mean that the Bible stands above all of those things to be the final and highest arbiter of all things for spiritual truth. And that's what the Apostle Peter is writing about, actually, in 2 Peter. So, with the theme of Reformation and the authority of Scripture, we're going to 2 Peter, where Peter writes about the authority of Christ's own Word, made manifest both to Peter, in front of him, that he saw with his own eyes, But more importantly, the same authority that Jesus has as it is mediated for us in the Scriptures as the people of God gather for worship. So, we're looking at the authority of Scripture this morning under the heading of Sola Scriptura here in 2 Peter. Let's pray and we'll ask God's blessing upon the Word today. Great God, we bow now in Your presence to say that You are our God and we are your people. And because we love to be your people, we love to submit ourselves to the authority of the Scriptures where you, the living God, speak to us in your living Word that we might be people of truth and faith. And so come now, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to fill our minds with the truth, to fill our hearts with love that we might joyfully receive the Scriptures as the Word of God. Come now, Lord, and speak, for your servants are ready to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Word of God, 2 Peter 1, at verse 16, through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open here. Peter writes about authority. Peter writes about Christ's authority in the church. In the church, who gets to say what is true? In the church, by what rule are we governed? Who gets to say what is right and who gets to say what is true? We live in a world in which anybody is allowed to make any particular assertion or truth claim. And they can say, I believe this. 
You could ask them, why do you believe that? And they could just say, because I want to, or because I think so. Everybody everywhere is allowed to assert truth claims, and there's something good and right about living in a free world in which that's a helpful reality. When it comes to spiritual matters, though, where does authority lie? When it comes to what God has to say, is it the case that everybody is their own private interpreter and everybody gets to say entirely for themselves what God says? Who gets to say what is true in the church? Peter is writing about that question. Where does authority lie and on what basis does that authority exist? And what he's going to do, he's going to do in two ways. He's going to speak of his own apostolic authority based on the fact that Christ called him to be an apostle. This is Peter writing this. But he's also going to say, in addition to the reality of my apostolic calling, you, as a Christian believer, have a greater authority possessed by you. So he's speaking of authority in two ways. The first way that he speaks of authority is about his own apostolic authority, Peter's apostolic authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What gives Peter the right to speak about Jesus? What gives Peter, or for that matter, any other apostle, the right to speak and write about Jesus Christ? Well, at the end of verse 16, he tells you exactly what it is. He says there at the end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's Peter speaking about his personal experience of seeing Jesus Christ. If you remember in the book of Acts, when they were going to replace Judas as a person to gain rank among the apostles, there were requirements. What was required to be an apostle? It was that someone had to be a visible eyewitness to Jesus Christ, both in His living and teaching and in His resurrection glory. The apostles were a unique band of men who Jesus walked and talked with, which also included the apostle Paul, and Jesus designated this very unique group to be apostles. Now, there are some people still today who claim the title of apostleship or apostolic authority. When they claim that, they're either potentially running rampant against in hostility to what the Bible says about what an apostle really is, or they're using it in the Greek sense of apostolos, a messenger. And so somebody could be an apostolic messenger in the sense of bringing you a message from Jesus. But when people designate themselves apostles, they're really treading on very dangerous ground because there's only 12. And Jesus tells us exactly who they are. And Peter is one of those very unique men. Peter's claim to authority is that he is an eyewitness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not based on myths, fables, and tall tales. It's based on eyewitness record and testimony. So, Peter is saying, Here I am, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of Him. What is it that I saw? What is it that I witnessed about Jesus Christ that gives me authority to now speak about Him to you? And in verses 17 to 18, Peter is going on to describe one of the most remarkable events in the life of Jesus. In Jesus' earthly ministry, you have what we call the transfiguration. And if you want to read about it later on, you can go back and look in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, 
all record what we call this transfiguration when Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples, soon to be called apostles, James, John, and Peter, the same Peter who writes here, he takes them up on a mountain. And before their very presence, Jesus is transfigured. And what that means is Matthew Gospel tells us that Jesus' face shined like the sun and His clothes became white as light. And these men saw the spectacular transfiguration of Jesus Christ before them, where in addition to this sound, uh, what they saw, they heard the sounds of heaven and the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, they had been traveling with Jesus and they knew him with respect to his lowly condition. (coughs) But he was there in one moment, almost the veil of his humanity being rend back just a bit and they could peer into the glories of the fullness of the deity and divinity of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, as the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, and that happened, and Peter saw it. The transfiguration was all about confirming the authority of Christ. Jesus is exactly who He says He is. His teaching has authority. His miracles have divinity and authority. And they had this momentary foretaste of the glory of Christ that is one day going to be revealed. When He comes again in glory, it will look like this. And Peter is saying, listen, I saw that. Listen, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. Everything that the Old Testament says about the Messiah is true, and I saw it for myself. I saw it, I heard it, it's true. And Peter can say that, because he was there. But you weren't. You weren't there. I was not there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So what is the basis of our authority to claim the truth of the Gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ? After speaking about his apostolic authority, Peter goes on to tell how Christian believers who weren't there on the Mount of Transfiguration have an even stronger basis of authority for believing in Jesus Christ. What do we have? He writes about this, speaking in verse 17. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice, and we were with him. But there's this hinge in verse 19. What about you who weren't there? Verse 19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Speaking there about the prophetic word, Peter's talking about the Old Testament, of course, but here is the Apostle Peter, under divine inspiration, writing the New Testament, saying that even though we weren't there on the mountain to see this, we have the prophetic word which is more fully confirmed. Notice what Peter's doing. Notice what he's saying. You don't have to be on the mountain. You didn't have to be there. You didn't have to see it with your own eyes and hear it with your own ears to know that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because we have the Word. The Word which is more fully confirmed. In the Greek it's one word, babaios, which means steadfast, sure, firm, and certain. He's talking about the Bible. Peter says, we have the written word, which is steadfast, firm, steady, and sure, a witness to Jesus Christ. How do you know that Jesus is 
the Son of God? How do you know that Jesus is the Savior? How do you know that He pledges you the forgiveness of your sins? How do you know any of that? You know it here. And that's what Peter is saying. We have this prophetic word which is more fully confirmed. The Bible bears witness to Jesus Christ, Peter says in verse 19, like a lamp shining in a dark place. Borrowing the imagery of Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Peter is saying the prophetic word shines in the darkness that we might know the true path and where to walk, which brings everything into clear view. But more than that, Peter also explains why this written prophetic word has such great authority. And maybe you've wondered this. Somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible? And you say, well, I just do. I mean, now that may be true, but I want to encourage you that we can have a better answer than that. We can have a better answer than just kind of shrugging our shoulders and say, well, I don't know, I just do. And Peter gives us what that answer is. Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe what the Bible says? Why do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Because the Bible is the very Word of God, divinely inspired and provided to the church. So says Peter, the Bible is not, in the language of verse 20, the product of human myth and invention. The Bible does not originate in the mind of people or in the will of humanity. The Bible has human authors, to be sure, but it is not a matter of private interpretation. So what is the Bible? Peter says in verse 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, meaning the Scriptures don't come from people. But rather, verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's speaking there specifically about the Old Testament prophets, that they were speaking inspired words, and in the New Testament, Peter himself is writing inspired words because they were, in the language of verse 21, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's like a word picture of a sailboat, and wind is filling the sails of the boat, and the boat moves across the water. So too are human authors filled and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write and as human authors write, it is actually God's own Holy Spirit that inspires them, filling them as wind in a sail to record God's own word accurately, without error, and totally trustworthy. Peter says this is how inspiration happens. This is how God inspired the Old Testament prophets. This is how God inspired the writing of Holy Scripture. Or uh, our communicants, students of every generation will know this, to use the language of 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that the Bible is God's very breathed out word. That when you read the Bible, you are reading God's own word to you. And just like you go out on a cold morning and you breathe your hot breath and you see the evidence of that breath, so too does God breathe out the Scriptures to give to you His own Word codified in the Bible. 
So, Peter says, again in verse 21, nobody spoke of their own accord, but they spoke from God. They wrote God's own words as they were carried along, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So think about it. Think about it for a moment. The Bible is given to us by the supernatural process of divine inspiration through which God, by His Holy Spirit, inspires human authors to record His Word without error. God is the author Humans are passive authors, if we could say it this way, but the Bible is a collection of historic documents of divine origin spanning 1,500 years with 40 distinct human authors written in three different continents, and it all tells one story in complete agreement about the person and work of Jesus Christ foretold and promised and then revealed in the fullness of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Look, You can have a book of poetry that will inspire you. You can have a collection of novels that really move you. Music can inspire you emotionally and intellectually. But loved ones, only the Bible is divinely inspired. Only the Bible is God's own word to the church. Its author is God. It is not the invention of humanity. It comes from God Himself. So... If perhaps a person isn't convinced by Peter's own testimony about this, when he says, look, I was there and I saw this, but guess what? We have a more sure, more certain word in the Scriptures. You could ask yourself, what does Jesus believe about the Bible? What does Jesus Himself think of the Bible? Well, He says in John 10, 35, the Scriptures cannot be broken. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Thy word is truth. And what that means is that as followers of the Bible, as followers rather of Jesus, we should not believe anything less than Jesus believed about the Bible. If Jesus believed the Scriptures as His own word, so too as we who follow Jesus should believe the Scriptures as Christ's own Word. So what does it mean? And what does it look like, very practically, to believe the Scriptures as God's own inspired Word? Well, we should think of it, of course, during this Reformation season, uh, because we remember the conviction of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is the only rule of faith and practice for the church and the Christian life. That's what Martin Luther meant when he took his stand in 1521, saying, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. I cannot deny the Scriptures. God help me. Here I stand. I believe it because the Bible says it. The Reformation was all about taking a stand on the authority of Scripture. Now, during that time... Some 500 years ago, the Bible was, of course, recognized as a spiritual authority among other spiritual authorities, like church tradition or the decrees of the Pope or church councils. And it's difficult for you and I to imagine this, but if I were to take you back 500 years ago to just after the medieval period, what you would have is a reality in which you're living in the 16th century, you don't have a Bible. In fact, you've never even touched a Bible. Why? Because the only copy of the Scriptures that exists, exists in the church where it's the priest's job to read it and then tell you what it says. Even if you had a copy of the Bible, you wouldn't be able to read it because it's in Latin. And you don't speak Latin. 
the everyday person in the 16th century couldn't even fathom the notion of reading the Bible for themselves. It had never happened before, ever. It was the priest's job, and it's your job to take whatever the priest says and to do it because, well, he said so. But in the 16th century, between Bible translations and God's wonderful providence of the invention of the movable type printing press, you could, for the first time in history, put your hands on a copy of the Scriptures in a language that you could read so that you could read the Bible for yourself. To take what was said in the church and compare it against what the Bible said. And when people started to do that, they started to pay attention to the fact that there were things that the institution of the church demanded that the Bible doesn't say anything about. Like purgatory, the veneration of Mary and the institution of the papacy. When the church says that this is true and the Bible doesn't speak a word about it, what do you do? Well, at this time, the medieval church said, the church gives birth to the Bible. The church is a greater authority over the Bible. It's the church's job to tell you what the Bible says. But the spirit of the Reformation was, no, 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 the Bible gives birth to the church. The Bible is the authority over the church, and we should do in the church and believe as Christians what the Bible says and teaches. To set other authorities alongside of Scripture is actually to deny the exclusive authority of Scripture. It's the same point that Jesus makes in Matthew 15, verse 6, when He says that the traditions of the Pharisees make the Word of God void, which is why the Reformation was all about the authority of Scripture alone. Not Scripture and tradition, but Scripture alone. So said Luther that the Scriptures were like the swaddling clothes where Christ lies. That when you open the Bible and read it, you have the living Christ revealed to you, accessible to you, that you might know Him and believe upon Him and trust Him and follow Him with your life. So, what, what should that mean for us? Very practically, as Christians now living in 2022, worshiping in this church, what what does that mean when Peter says we have this more surely confirmed prophetic word provided to us? So what? Well, several things. I've got four deeply, I hope, practical realities that we should hold on to as Christian believers because of this. Functionally, the authority of Scripture in the church, first of all, I said this where I was last week in Montezuma preaching a retirement service. I said there are two sounds that every pastor loves to hear in church. And the first is babies. Because it means there is a generation upcoming. Yes, even when they are, you know, all the rest, because they are our children. We love to hear the sound of babies cry, and we love to hear what? We love to hear the sound of Bible pages turning. I want you to know that when I say keep your Bible open, like, I really mean it. Because just as much as Bible pages flipping is a glorious sound to my ear, it is nails on a chalkboard to hear you go boom and put it back in the rack. I hear that too. 
It's like nails on a chalkboard. Don't do that. Please, I beg of you, why? Because when you do that, listen to me very seriously, when you do that, you regress the Reformation because you say, I'll just take his word for it. Whatever he says. And I want to say to you very plainly, don't take my word for it. You should be with Bible open confirming what I am saying because if I'm not saying what it says there, then I'm wrong and you should cast me out. But it's your job as a Christian believer to take the Word of God that you can read for yourself and say, is it here? An open Bible is an authoritative Bible. See it for yourself. First of all, that's first. Secondly, when you open that Bible, you should have a sense of expectation to have the Word of God read, explained, and applied as Holy Scripture rather than mere suggestion. Because preaching is not about my display of creative insight so that you'll marvel at my genius. Because I'm not that smart, I'm not that creative, I'm not funny, I don't have a lot of wisdom to share, and I don't have a bunch of stories. I have a few, but that's about it. But biblical preaching isn't about me and my personality. It's about what God says as it is revealed to the people and exalted in their presence. In biblical preaching, when it's based on the authority of God's Word, you will encounter the living God in His living Word as His Holy Spirit, which divinely inspired that Word, comes upon you, illuminates your eyes to say, I see that and I believe it. Something remarkable and supernatural is happening in that moment when you are listening to biblical preaching with an open Bible and saying, wow. Secondly, that expectation. Third, with addition to an open Bible and a sense of expectation, you should have a humility to receive the Word of God proclaimed as God's Word. Very precisely, loved ones, when you and I come up against something that we don't prefer, or that is not culturally palatable, we will find whether or not our submission to God's Word is sincere or just based on preference. Because for some folks, approaching the Bible is like approaching a cafeteria line and they take some and leave some instead of saying it's all God's Word. When you come up against something that is difficult or not culturally palatable, you will find out whether or not you actually believe that word. An open Bible, a sense of expectation, humility, and a will to obey. Finally, the things that are said to which you respond, yes, Lord, you call me to forgive, you call me to serve, you call me to love, you call me to sacrifice, you call me to obey. Because when God's word is sent forth, he doesn't do it as a suggestion or an option. He does it as the authoritative word of the creator of heaven and earth to which we, his creatures, say, yes, Lord. Because the scriptures are the infallible, unchanging word of the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusted to his apostles and preserved in the Holy Spirit, we hold no greater authority than the scriptures in the church. I used to say it like this, and I'll close with this. I used to speak about Bible-believing churches. I used to speak about Bible-believing churches in distinction from those churches that don't hold Scripture as their highest authority. 
but I'm correcting myself because a church that doesn't believe the Bible isn't a church. It might be something else, but it's not the church of Jesus Christ. So, because the church holds forth God's Word as our highest authority, we hold the reality that God has spoken. And we in glad submission say, yes, Lord. And why wouldn't we? And what greater thing than to have the reality of God's own Word fully confirmed that you might know what you believe and why because God's Word says so. Loved ones, this is our confidence. Let us hold it fast together. Let's pray. Great God, we give you thanks that you, by divine revelation, have shown forth yourself in the creation of the world. And we can know that you are real, but more especially, you reveal yourself in Holy Scripture that we might not only know that you are God, but know who you are, what you require from us, and how we might live in obedience to you. So Lord, bless us, your people, as we live under divine authority, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.